Welcome to the Lanky Guys. This is a podcast that we deal with scriptures on the hill. It's amazing. Welcome to it. I'm Father Peter Bussey. My name is Scott Powell. I'm just going to play it straight. I'm just going to keep going. I don't know. I, I just... Beginning I, the podcast is a little stressful. Always. And I think we gotta, just talk about that a lot, actually. We do talk about it a lot. Sometimes I edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, um, it is wonderful to have you join us today. For so this, wonderful. With this uh, podcast that... Um, I really think that we're doing something that's cool. I hope so, because it's a lot of work. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It no, is, I mean, it is a lot of work. It is. And, but, but like, if I could convince the world that the scriptures mm. matter and that the story mm. forms your ability to understand all stories, then I have done some small part for the advancement of humankind. Yeah. And uh, so you're 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 giving them sort of a prerequisite for what we want them to take from the podcast. Exactly. You're giving them the takeaway. Yeah, the takeaway yeah. that this matters and that it can transform your ability to watch your Netflix. That's true, actually. Yeah. I don't. I mean, <laughs> I expected <laughs> actually, you to be making a joke. I'm like, but no, that was actually profound. No, no. Like so, so that as as you engage, then you're like, oh, this is wonderful. All right. Can I make a? I guess it's a confession. I don't know what you would call it. And I told you already. In the so name gonna... of the Father and no, the no, Son no, no, and no, the not Holy sacramental. Spirit. Oh. And I already told you this earlier, and I actually rocked your world. I, shaped, I, I shook your, your reality. My paradigm. I'm getting into podcasts. I've, oh, I've... dude. I don't... Yeah, it's still messing with me. I don't even know how to deal with this. You've been so recalcitrant for so long. I don't know if I've been recalcitrant. <laughs> Is that really where you're going <laughs> to... It's it's so here's here's the uh, the weird paradox I think and this is this leads to some a point that I want to make, um, I think and I've just some from some of my research I think a lot of podcasts are uh, experiencing lower numbers and sl- lower listenerships I don't think we're we're actually we've been pretty stable. But I think a lot of people listen to podcasts. You mean personally or in numbers? In numbers. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, and and statistically. (laughs) Because I think a lot of people listen to podcasts during their commute to work and stuff like that. And I think in the last few months, fewer people have been commuting to work, and so they don't have the drive time. What? I'm just kidding. Uh, You have your commute. But so I think a lot of podcasts have been experiencing like a a slight drop just because, you know, if you're not in the car. Um, It's weird, though, because I've actually started listening to podcasts more during this time, and I have grown... I guess this is confessional. I've grown, and even though we've had a podcast for seven years, and I love our podcast, um, I've grown in my appreciation for the medium of podcast. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I've started to just kind of get a, a, a renewed sense of mission that this is this is an important platform. This is an important medium, and like you said, I think we do have something to say. And so I, I, I we have not. Um, I'm not going to say we haven't done a good job, but we haven't t- put a lot of emphasis or effort into our marketing of this podcast, partially because we have our listeners. I'm still convinced that word of mouth and telling your friends is the best possible way of marketing something, having people who appreciate something tell the people that they know in their life. But at the same time, I, I, I've i seen our numbers just kind of we're, – we're, we're steady and it's good. But I, I do think we have something to say. And the more I listen to podcasts and hear people just, you know – listen to their own voices like we have an important voice to add to this and i think there's an important paradigm so um i want to encourage you all please share this podcast with your friends i know we say that periodically but do put it on your social media put it um if you wouldn't mind 
uh, rating us and reviewing us on iTunes. I know that's one of the ways that uh, that podcasts get more attention and kind of they show up in the world more. So if you could take a few minutes when you're done listening to the podcast, go and rate us, give us a rating or review on iTunes. That would help a lot. We're going to look into some more platforms to put this podcast on. But um, I, I'm also becoming more and more convinced as I listen to podcasts and watch the news and just kind of listen to all the noise in our world there are very few voices that are not sort of extreme one way or the other or angry or trying to rile people up and very few voices and platforms that are trying to be reasonable and actually get people to think intelligently in a long form way about the world and about what's going on around us. And to the degree that we can encourage that and encourage thought and reflection and slowing down and taking a minute, I want to fill a void that I really see in that realm. So anyway, that's my little fervorino about podcasts. That's a good fervorino. Uh, we are entering into the 13th Sunday in ordinary time. We are. We are. You, you know, it's funny is that nope. I I have it on the, um uh, like our mass intentions on the altar. Um, I have it filled out as 13th in OT in overtime. And so in overtime. Every time I see OT, I'm like, we're in overtime. This is awesome. <laughs> it's a uh, sudden death. Our first reading is from the second book of Kings, version 4, 8 through 11, 14 through 16a. All right. Our responsorial psalm is coming from Psalm 89, verse 2 to 3, 16 through 17, and 18 through 19. So take that. Yeah. Our second reading is from the book of St. Paul written to the Romans, ah. a community. <laughs> Chapter 6, true. 3 for 4, jumping through 8 to 11. Okay. I guess that was mainly words. Uh, <laughs> was that mainly? What did you, you say? You said 3 for 4. <laughs> 3 for 4. <laughs> 3 for 4. Our gospel is coming from the gospel of Matthew. Chapter 10, verses 30 to 37 through 42. So... So <laughs> so that brings us back to Second Kings. Okay. I, can I talk about Second Kings? Oh, no, you you got something. I see something bubbling up. I, I want you to talk about this because you have to go back <sighs> a little bit to understand. And like there's I think there's, you need to go forward a little bit. There's a lot of. Um, well, yeah, you have to like the whole story about why this took place. OK. OK. Can I tell you one of the reasons why it was it affected me a lot is Please. that is at the beginning. It says, you know, one day Alicia came to. How do I Shunem. say Shunem. Uh, where there's a woman. she's a Shunamite. Yeah, Shunamite. <laughs> so it'd be like calling you Den because you're a Denverite. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. So this woman of influence who said, come on, have dinner. And then he passed by. He'd stopped to dine. So he said, this is the holy man of God. Let's make a little hermitage for him. Can we pause really quick? No. Nope. Just, just for one. Come on. Yeah. Um, one step back because you're, you're going the right place. This is shortly after, so we're dealing with a guy named Elisha, right? which is not to be mistaken with Elijah, one of the most important, well, not most important, well, well-known, recognizable of the prophets. This is two chapters after Elijah, who has done all these things. Remember, he was the one that, we, we actually get a lot of the tradition for the spiritual life from the story of Elijah, who, you know, went up against cruel kings, tried to speak the word of God, went out into the wilderness, was led by God into these different stages of, of the interior life to understand what God is doing he did in prophet, himself and in the world. Yeah, did prophet battles. Prophet battles. There was all sorts of stuff. 
um, one of the gifts that God g- gives Elijah after going through this this profound time of spiritual darkness is a companion, a disciple, someone to walk with him named Elisha. And what we're getting is just two chapters after now Elijah finishes his earthly mission and earthly time, is taken up at the Jordan River on a chariot into the heavens, and is given authority now to Elisha, his disciple, his right-hand man, to go and continue the work that Elijah has done. So this is the very beginning, really, of the story of Elisha now continuing on what Elijah had done. That is just to kind of set us in the scene. This is the beginning of Elisha now going and performing miracles and being a prophet in the spirit and power and authority of Elijah, who's now just ascended into heaven. Right. So, so I just wanted to catch us up. Right. So she, she says, uh, let us arrange a little room on the roof and furnish it with a bed, table, chair, and a lamp. She's like a benefactor, right? right. She gets that this guy is doing holy work. By the way, this is a, a particularly— Make him an apartment. But it's a big deal because if you remember from the story of Elijah, this is the northern kingdom, and this is a part of the world that has pretty much— outright denied and forsaken the ways of Yahweh and worship of the temple and really everything that Elijah had to say. So the fact that there is this fairly influential, prominent, wealthy person who is not just sympathetic, but wants to support and give, um, yeah, give support to what Elisha is doing, which is namely speaking against the kings of this place and these people, the gods that they're worshiping and the culture at large. It's not insignificant that this person's like, I want to support you because chances are nobody else is or right. very few people are. Right. So that, this is kind of a big deal that she's she's significant in the community and she sees through to what the truth of what God is doing through this guy is. Right. So she cares for him. Yeah, because you need a space to be able to house a prophet. You yeah, know? you never know when you're going to need to house a prophet. Now, this the this story. So basically, she comes up oh. and, and she's and he's like he says to his servant, he says, "Hey, this gal just did, did you did read this the inter- intervening verses here? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, what do you want? And like, what what can we do? And so here comes this gal, and he's like, "You are childless." So can I say a word about the servant just before? Yeah, we get yeah. To, so Ge- Gersha. We don't know much about it's Gehazi. We don't know a whole lot about Gehazi, but it, he's someone who accompanies Elisha. And it, it's the word that's used is servant, but I don't I don't get the impression this is like his butler. You know what I mean? Right. Like it's, a valet. It's something like this person is to Elisha something like Elisha was to Elijah. Mm. Kind of a disciple, right? Run who is sort of accompanying him right. for the sake of the mission. So yeah, it says servant, but I don't think it's that the meaning of like yeah, a valet or a, a valet, as they would say on Downton Abbey. Valet. <laughs> but it's it's kind of like a disciple, right? Yeah, so he says, hey, valet, check out what this lady <laughs> wants. Just, what did I just say? <laughs> <laughs> no, he's like, he's like, hey, she has done so much for me. I wonder what we can do for her. I wonder what how we can pay this back. Yeah, which is interesting. And she says... Um, when he says, he's like, do you want us to talk to the government for you? Do you yeah, want us to King like, or the commander of the army? She says, no, I do like, my, my life own is people. Good. My life is good. I'm happy here. I'm yeah. content. My, ev- I have everything I need. I want to... There, there's something to that line. And I don't want to read into it too much. Yeah. But there's something to the fact that her response to Elisha wanting to be generous back to her, to 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 repay the gift is... I'm fine. My life is good. I have everything I need. Right. I don't need anything else, which is what's going to be a bit of the source of the problems that come later. Well, and then that's where he says, 
she has uh, uh, Gehazi says she has no son and her husband's old and he yeah. says bring her over here he says this time next year you're going to have a son and, and what she, does she say this is this doesn't show this intervening part doesn't show up in the readings and she says don't lie to me yeah don't lie to me and that's a really i've been i've been struck by that it's really powerful to me yeah she's which tells us that even though she just said I'm fine. I've got everything I need. The Lord's taking care of me. I'm happy. I'm content in the state of my life. Right. There is a deep longing that she actually does have that is so deep and so profound that you get the impression that she doesn't even want to articulate it for fear of being let down. Perhaps again, maybe she's been let down many times in this. She's like, I'm not even going to make that prayer. I don't even want to ask God or you, his representative, for that. Because I'm so afraid or terrified of being disappointed. And I just think of all the times and the things in our life that we want to pray for, that we want to hope for. We're like, I'm not even going to do it because I I know I'm going to be let down. I've been let down before. I'm going to be disappointed. I know that God won't do it for me, even though I really want it. So I'm not even going to ask. Yeah. Anybody I've, I've ever given counsel to who's struggled with infertility, it's so deep. Yeah. It's deep. It's a deep in, in a way to where she's like, don't mess with me. Right. Absolutely. Don't mess with me. Yeah. It's powerful. It's and, a really powerful line. And so then she has a son. Next line. She has a son. She gets pregnant. Right? What does yep. it say about this time next year? That's where our reading here ends. He says, next time, this time next year, you will be fondling a baby son. But then if you read on, this is where I, I don't quite get liturgically why we stop here me too i mean well because i feel like the second half is it's hard it's rough it's like so what happens is that the son gets a little bit older so she has a son yeah she has a son the son's getting a little bit older they're working in the field with the dad one day and he's like my head hurts yeah and 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 you're reading it like if if you understand the value of narrative you should be reading it and be like oh no like this is what's called foreshadowing, right? <laughs> right. Like, oh, my head hurts. What's oh no? What's going on? It's there that you can follow the way that screenplays and movies tend to go, right? There's there's the setting up of the characters. There is a conflict that's presented. Like this thing is wrong. Right. The conflict. I, I've been thinking about rom coms, romantic comedies, right? <laughs> okay. And there's like the people are are sort of set up. There's usually a conflict. It seems like they can never be uh, compatible with each other, right? Something happens or some circumstances bring them together. There's usually a montage and there's usually a scene in the kitchen where there's like, you know, soap suds on somebody's nose and they're laughing and everything seems great. And like these two are going to be compatible and happily ever after. And then inevitably there's the conflict. Something goes wrong. Well, okay. Here's an even deeper reality is that in every single movie or television show that we watch, every single scene is filled with conflict. Even the buddies so it's like I was watching Heroes. So okay. like H- Hiro Nakamura is here with his friend Ando. And he's like, oh, no. Calrissian? Ando Calrissian. Sorry, nice, nice pull. Thanks, man. That was, that was an association. But the whole time he keeps on being worried because he's like, Ando's going to die. And, and it's because of my... It's because of my choices to be a hero, oh, and I'm geez. not a good hero. So then, oh. so then he's every single interaction he has with him is colored by this thing. Yeah. So what we're seeing is that the conflict is is that she she conceived and bore a son, and we know that whenever a woman has that happen, so Sarah and Isaac, yeah. 
you know, we have it, um, we, you know, we have uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah. Uh, we have um, Mary and Jesus. I was going to say Mary and Joseph. And right. Jesus. Mary and Joseph and Ma- Jesus, Mary and Joseph. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. like we have these things and we feel that this conflict of this tremendous valuing in a way because of the, the, the deprivation of something. So we have this intrinsic conflict because she didn't think I, she would ever be able to have a son. And so out of that deprivation, we know that she, her love is ferocious in a whole other capacity. Uh, you're talking about the, uh, the sh- Shunem? Yeah, the Shunem. Yeah, which which leads to this. It's different than Mary. I was thinking, as you said, Mary and Elizabeth, Mary and, and Jesus. Mary, it, it, it is a deep foreshadowing of what's going to happen with Mary and Jesus, because when the angel comes to Mary, who for totally different reasons, not old age, thinks that she's not going to have a child right. because of other circumstances, she says, how can this be? What are you talking about? And then the angel warns her, basically, he's going to be the cause of the rise and fall of many in Israel, and there's going to be conflict. And then later on, Simeon at the temple during the presentation is like, a sword's going to, like, there's going to be trouble. So you said yes, and this gift is going to be given to you, but there is a tremendous but. You're going to be given this gift, this child, this son, but... And I, I see it so clearly in the life of Mary with what's going to happen with her son. It's not stated explicitly here, but that's why it's sort of a foreshadowing of what will happen with Mary. And so, yeah, the son gets a headache. He is sick. Uh, and He's they carried were, to his father. Amongst the reapers, I actually just noticed that, which <laughs> the harvest is is ripe. Oh, the harvest is ripe. I never noticed that either. So actually. what happens is that the symbolic... Yeah, the reapers. Who among, was with the reapers. He was with the reapers, and so they needed more cowbell, but they didn't get it. <laughs> I was wondering how you would get. Yeah, well done, well played. Oh. Yeah, that's the that comes from the and Saturday all I can Night picture Live. Picture of Will Ferrell. Yeah, yeah, like it's and the song is "Don't Fear the Reaper" um, that they're playing while they're on Saturday Night Live for the cowbell. Christopher Walken, Christopher the famous Walken. cowbell. Sketch. We need more cowbell. Oh. So, so okay. here he is, and so, so he, he goes and he goes on his mom's lap and dies, which is this again. It's this return. So from that, and then on her lap, he dies. And what's the emotion of mom? I knew it. I knew you it was lied too to good me. to be true. You lied to me. It's you lied to me, but also there's a sense of like, I knew it. I knew this was too good to be true. I didn't want a son. I didn't want to go down. I didn't want to give my heart to this. I didn't want to believe that I should be given this gift because I was so afraid it's going to be taken from me. And guess what? I was right. And then so and symbolically, she puts him on the bed that she made for Alicia. Partially because I think she wants to. Hu- this is a strange moment. There's a lot of things going on here. Right. Um, I think that part of what in some commentaries I was reading is part of why she's doing this is that she seems to want to hide what's happened from everyone else. Mm. She doesn't want anyone to know. And there's this mixture. This is the complicated emotion of the probably anger, probably disappointment, probably like I knew it. I told you so kind of thing. I knew I couldn't have a gift that was this great. But at the same time, I'm not going to tell anyone. I'm going to hide him in a certain sense in Elisha's in Elisha's bed, because maybe, maybe there's a chance. And you remember then Elijah and or, I'm sorry, Elisha. I keep doing that. Yeah. Elisha and Gehazi go to see her. She comes to find them. Right. She goes to seek them out. And she does a Mary Magdalene and cries and weeps on Elisha's feet. Yeah, but before that, remember Gehazi gets to her first, and, and he's like, the, "Are you okay? Is everything yeah. all right?" And she says. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Everything's totally fine. I'm great. Yeah. Which is interesting. 
which tells me that, again, with the sort of hiding the sun up in Elijah, in Elisha's room, she doesn't want to share this pain with anyone except Elisha. Oh, She's like, I will talk to him alone. No, I'm fine. Everything's cool. Don't worry about it. I'm going to talk to you. And then she tells Alicia, and Alicia's like, oh I my didn't gosh. read this situation right. He's like, he's oh like, gosh. I didn't even see this coming. Oh my gosh, there's so yeah, he, and which Alicia's tells like, me that, what? that that she doesn't. She's super concealed, and yes. here's a d- yes. doesn't even doesn't grasp it because she really has concealed this. Yes, right. Because it's so not because she's trying to be deceitful, right. but she's like, this is too intimate to share with anybody else. I'm not willing to release this. And then she tells Alicia, Alicia's like, what? Oh, my gosh, this is horrible. What do we do? And he sends Gehazi with his staff to basically go and, and you know, that, that trusting that God's work and his power will work through his staff and with Gehazi. And she's like, I ain't going with him. I'm staying with you. So she almost doesn't buy it. She's like, yeah, he can go. He can do what he wants to do. He can try his best. But I'm only staying with you, Alicia. And it's almost like the, do you remember the story in the gospel where Jesus heals the blind guy? Mm-hmm. And there's the, like the two rounds. Yeah. And so he heals him, but it doesn't quite take. So Gehazi goes back and puts Elisha's, Elisha's staff on the boy and it doesn't do anything. On his face, anything. which is like it doesn't work. So, super weird. I actually think that she didn't even tell her husband that the son died. I bet you're right. That's why I, I bet you're right. And that's why she kind of hides him up there. Well, because he says, he, she says, I'm going out to the see the prophet. She's yeah. like, he's like, it's new it's moon. It's not Sunday. It's not, it's not a like, day you usually, which tells you that she she's like, goes it's, and it's sees him good. often. It'll be well. But it tells you also that this is a tight relationship. Right. She goes to see him often at these particular times. Right. He's like, oh, it's not your usual time for seeing Elisha, which means he's sort of like a spiritual director to her, perhaps, or something like that. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but the 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 moment of, I don't know, I, I've, I've been emotionally hit by the moment of, I bet this is going to work. I'm going to give the staff. He'll do this miracle. God's going to be faithful. Don't worry. He'll come through. It'll be fine. And guess what? It doesn't work. And the emotion of Gehazi, of Shunem, of Elisha, when they're like, Oh, maybe God's not showing up here. Maybe this isn't going to solve the problem. Right. He's still dead. Everything that we thought would work. I'm reminded almost almost sounds like the 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 uh, man and woman on the road to Emmaus, right? We had hoped right. that this would work and it didn't. And I wonder about the moment that maybe Elisha reaches back into his memory banks to when Elijah his protege, the one he discipled, or was a disciple of, did this to another poor widow's son. Remember this? Mm-hmm. And lays his body. Actually, if you read it closely, Elisha becomes cruciform on top of this boy's body. He takes the position of the cross on top of his body, and his cruciform position brings the young boy back to life, which is, again, the, the foreshadowing, the symbolism is, is really rich here. Right. And then the story kind of ends with like, Cool. Everything's fine. Everybody lives happily ever after. Right. And the reason I brought up at the very beginning of this whole thing that it frustrates me is that my my first response is like, why did why God? Why did you make them go through all that? Like she didn't want to even be so vulnerable as to ask for a son, and she gets a son, and then you kill him or you allow him to die, and they have to go through this whole thing, and then oh he's brought back to life, but. Oh my gosh, how much pain in the middle. Well, Why do you allow this to And I mean, I guess I know on a certain spiritual level, well, but yeah, it's not an easy story to be like, oh, bing bang boom, everything's cool. 
Well, this is something that you said as we were talking unlocked some uh, a, a, a vision in my heart about her. Okay. She wouldn't even reveal her need and longing for a son. Yeah, no, she wasn't that willing it, to do th- it. Th- that, that, and that um, because the truth is, is that when it comes to a, having a child, there is all of this stuff involved. Yeah, right. There are headaches and hard times and death and life and work and difficulty. And that mm. to open ourselves to the complexity of what we really long for and desire is is a real hard thing. Absolutely. And, and to she, share that with somebody else. Right. That she really actually wanted that. And so this was a prophetic gesture of which... She's like, don't lie to me. It was so needful and yeah. so vulnerable and painful in her heart that she was like, seriously, don't mess with me. You know, right. I, I felt like it was the end scene from um, uh, what was that uh, Matt Damon movie where he was the Bostonian? Oh, uh, Goodwill Hunting. Goodwill Hunting. When he's when he's oh looking, my gosh, when he's like he keeps being when Robin Williams keeps saying it's not, it's not your, your fault. fault. And it's he's not. He's, he's like, like I know he's, it's not my. He's like stop. not you. Yeah, not you too. Wow, that is. There's, That's a good analogy. Well yeah, done. I kept on when when she was saying when she said that I just felt the same thing. Like not you too. Don't mess with me here where I am so vulnerable. And that and that in a certain way, what did God have to do with her? But then to actually take her to this this place of vulnerability and show that God is still and in surrender. Charge. Right. Of God, saying, okay. I got to surrender my son. Even I've got in no this choice. place of of most tender vulnerability. Because she could have done something else. She could have been not secretive, I suppose, in a certain sense of like, my son died, loud lamentation of, can you believe that God did this to me? I mean, really, right. people tend to go one of two ways when tragedy hits. Either they go deeper into the spiritual life or they rebel against the spiritual life of I need this tragedy has struck my life. I need to cling closer to God right. or this tragedy has struck my life. I'm really angry at God for this. And I want to express, you could have seen her be like, see, this is what I said. This is why I didn't want to do this. Look, look at how unfaithful God is. Look at how horrible Alicia is. This is why I didn't want to go down. You, you could see that, but she, it's, it's, what is it? What is it said about Mary? She keeps these things close to her heart, right? right. She guarded it. She's like, I need to go to Alicia first. Well, and this is I'm what I give God a chance. Right. This is the thing that I see in my pastoral work a lot is that when people start to have real tragedy and difficulty in their life, yeah. what they miss is that if they have any level of fidelity, when I'm saying any level of fidelity to God through the difficult things that are in their lives, any any open door to God, what ends up happening is the things that are healed in their life are more profound than the wound that is inflicted through the tragedy. If they are willing to see it. If even they're if, not always self-evident. It's well, God is still doing it if right. you're if yes, you respond absolutely. in any level of faith, if you let him in yeah. at any mm-hmm. level in your life. I see what you're saying. That that things get healed. And mm-hmm. now it takes a while for you to actually have the story unfold and for your realization of that healing to take place. Yeah. But I, I've seen it with health stuff. I've seen mm-hmm. it with tragedy and trauma. Mm-hmm. I've seen it with in in, in like because this is tr- this is both exultant and traumatic. Yes, to have your son die, uh, get a headache during the reaping season, and then go, 
and then she, because she's relating to this the son that you weren't even willing to admit that you wanted because right. you were so afraid because it was so close to what yes. your need and your desires are in your heart. Ugh. And this, and then God trains you. This is a interesting. So Psalm eighty nine says says everything about this. Yes, but it doesn't say it. Unless you read all of Psalm 89. <laughs> did this, you read all of Psalm 89? I did. You did? <laughs> yeah, of course. I was... Do you know the context of Psalm 89? No, tell me. Oh my gosh. The context of Psalm 89. Psalm 89 was written as a prayer to lament and mourn the death of the Davidic kingdom. Oh. That's what the prayer is. And all oh. we get is the first half. And this is where, again, I don't understand why... Again, it, I, I think... In my, in my most optimistic point of view, I hope that the church is trusting us to go deeper and to explore more and to find the <laughs> connections. Because if you don't keep reading the story of the first reading, you actually don't know what happens. Right. If you don't keep reading Psalm 89, you actually don't see the connection with the first reading. Because the first half of Psalm 89 says, what, so what does it say? Forever I will sing the goodness of the Lord. Through the promises of God I will sing forever. It goes on, blessed are the people who know the joyful shout. In the light of your countenance they will walk. At your name they will rejoice. You are the splendor of your strength by your favor his horn is exalted for the Lord is our shield. Everything is awesome. Things are great. We are the best kingdom ever. And then you hit verse 38. And in verse 38 of Psalm 89, there is a violent turn. This is a very long um, psalm in case you're wondering. It's a very long psalm, but there is a violent turn in in verse 38. And I just want to read it. So after talking about everything's awesome, the Lord is our shield. He's protecting us. He loves us. Everything is cool. You get to verse 38 and it says, but... You have rejected, you have spurned, you have become angry with your anointed one. That is David, the kingdom itself, the Davidic kingdom. Or you the gal in the first reading. Yes, that's the point, is that the gal in the first reading is actually embodying all of Israel. Right. And what happens to her, God actually allows to happen to the entire kingdom when you know, it goes on. What does it say? The uh, You've renounced your covenant with your servant. You've defiled the crown, his crown in the dust. You've broken through the walls. You've reduced the strongholds. All who pass have plundered him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. If you read this in the first century, or in, in the uh, Old Testament context, it is a lamentation that this was the greatest kingdom ever. God was with us. He protected us. He formed us. He covenanted himself with us. Which and means then to he, make family. And then he abandoned us. And then he left us. And then we got destroyed. And then the sons of David were killed and their crowns were despoiled. And everything went away. And it is a lamentation. Uh, I mean, it's meant to be almost a funeral dirge of this was what we had and got it established. And then it died. Hmm. And to know, to read Psalm 89 without the rest of salvation history is a very depressing thing to do. Yeah. And what the Christian church does then is come in, and maybe you noticed this in, the, in a couple of words I read there, the the early church came in and said, holy cow, not only is Psalm 89 a lamentation for the kingdom of Israel, it's about Jesus, who is Israel embodied, 
who was the promise of the Father, who was the thing that humanity was so great, humanity wasn't even willing to ask for because it was too much for God to become a human being. All we could ask was that God would look at us, save us, turn his face toward us. To think that God would become one of us, that's way too much. And then he becomes a human being, and guess what? He gets killed. He dies. He dies. He was Israel. He was the king. He was God incarnate. And, and you're like, oh it's, my goodness. It's a promise that we couldn't almost even face like right. this first reading. Exactly. And but to miss the rest of Psalm 89 is to miss the, the glue that holds all the readings together. Right, which leads us seriously into, into Romans, Romans which, yeah. is, yes. which is to say even more than it, it's not just that now um, we have died with Christ. I mean, that, that, that Christ has died. But now that we actually are inaugurated into Christ in a death like his through yes. baptism. And if you remember, the con- we talked last week about the context of Romans, which was an ethnic fight between Jewish Christians and newly converted Gentile Christians about basically the superiority or the inferiority of the other, right? The Jewish Christians saying, well, you guys are the Johnny-come-latelys. You're, you're lucky we even let you into this group. You know, you guys have been off worshiping idols and stone statues and doing paganistic, horrible and things in the- Zeus. And they're saying, oh, hold on a second, you Jewish Christians. So many of you guys rejected the Messiah. He came among you and you rejected him and you shouted crucify him. Not to mention the fact that you rejected the covenants and you worshiped golden calves and you're no better than we are. And both are basically vying to say, we are better than you guys because you've blown it in all these ways. And so Paul's whole strategy for reuniting Jew and Gentile ethnically fighting Christians in the church is saying, you both stink. And the glory that you're both looking for to say that we are better than the other is to miss the entire point of Christianity was that if you were baptized, it doesn't mean, oh, I'm better than everybody else. It means, oh, I've actually died. I've been united with Jesus, not merely in his glory, but in his sacrifice, in his death. And I've died to everything else in my life. What is baptism but a drowning to our old selves? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the child who we didn't think that we could even handle the promise of, who then we receive, who dies, who rises to change everything. He is the Israel. He is the fulfillment of the child. He is the fulfillment of the kingdom. He is the fulfillment of David. And not only that, like you said, now you have entered into that, not because you're better, but because you've died with him. Because we have espoused the things in the world that are that that are deadly. This is actually in a. It's about espousal because yeah. what God has joined, men must not divide. And so He's saying once the covenant is established. And what happens is that we've covenanted ourselves with sin. We've covenanted ourselves Absolutely. in in we've made family. And of he's saying these to gods. both of them, both of you have right. Whether you're a Jewish Christian or a Gentile Christian, you've both covenanted yourself with sin, right? And in different ways. And so the only way to have, you know, I do this in marriage prep all the time. Do you know that you're entering into a lifelong covenant that can only be dissolved by death? And or some people like what? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, the, the, and everything gets real at that yeah, moment. Yeah, I bet. And so, 
at the end of it, mm. Jesus says, okay, well then as God and hum- and as man, I'm going to die so that we can establish a new covenant. Yeah. As God become man. As God die. become man so that you can be espoused to the one who loves you. Right. And the, the, and, and, and this espousal is, means that you're dead to the, that stuff of old. You're not bound to it. Right. You actually can be free, which leads us into Matthew. Which leads us into Matthew, which is ex- picking up exactly where last week's met, left off, which was Jesus' warning to his disciples as he sends them out on mission that, guess what? Everybody's going to hate you. Right. You're not going to be well-received. And if you're looking to be popular or find favor with men, you will not. Right. Um, and here he actually takes it even further. And so what we, again, what we don't get in this reading is what he says just before this, well, which is important. Well, we also have to put this in context yeah. that this is Jesus's speech to everybody before they all go out town to town to town to town to town. Right. And they will be hated. Did you say that already? Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> that context? Okay. Yeah, it's mean, all right, man. I mean, well, I knew you that. Don't they, know. A, that happens. No, no, no. I knew that you said that that part, but I didn't. Yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. No, no, no. You, it's fine. you know, I, no, I was studying. There's a lot of love going on. There's a lot. <laughs> it was all love. They were all zoned out. Uh, yeah, they were. <laughs> but in the context of him saying, <laughs> go out, do these things, they will not like you, he says this really troubling line in verse 34, right before this, right? Three right. verses before. Um, do not think that I've come. It, it's funny. If you take this in a weird juxtaposition, he just told the disciples to go out. And if they enter in, into any house, they say, peace come upon this house. Remember that? Right. And if they reject you, move on to the next one. So he said, go into all these houses and bring peace. Oh, by the way, do not think that I have come to bring peace to right. the world. And if you're listening, you've got to be like, wait, what now? <laughs> I right. thought you just told us to do the thing. He says, I come. I did not come to bring peace, but the sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one's enemies That's will be easy to do. The in-law thing, yeah. And one's enemies will not be will be those of his household. In other words, and then where we pick it up, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. In other words, not only, basically what he's doing is building upon what he said last week or in a couple of verses ago, which was when you go out to these places, you're going to get enemies. You're going to garnish people who won't like what you have to say. And to the degree that you're looking to please people, this is not the gig to be in. And if that's not enough, the people who you will not please might even be your own family members. You might tick off your mom. You might tick off your children. You might garner enemies for my name, even not just from you know the, the fool down the street who you don't really like anyway, but your own family, you could become bring division. Not because Jesus desires division, but because truth is hard and difficult and painful. And sometimes it's so vulnerable that people don't like to be confronted with truth. Right. That's that real. And so he's this is basically a warning saying, Don't be surprised when everybody kind of hates you because you hold to things that don't match up with what the rest of the world believes. Where everybody's saying this, but you actually say this. And that makes you, I I keep thinking of all of our political categories, which frustrate me so much. And that, you know, I kind of, I, 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 
like, you know, I, I fit with people who think this way, except about this thing. And then I kind of fit with people who think this way politically, oh, except about that thing. And nobody really likes the true Catholic where the Catholic is supposed to stand. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's to be expected. And to take it even further, so number one, nobody's really going to like you. Number two, even your own family might turn on you. And number three, to take it even further than that, this is one thing I found striking about this. This is the first place in the entire Gospel of Matthew that Jesus mentions the cross. Oh. And that's significant because when we hear the, at least when I hear the term, take up your cross and follow me, which is what he says, take up your cross. When I hear the term, take up your cross, I hear that within, how old am I? 41. 41 years of basically Christian upbringing. And I see, you know, images and paintings of Jesus, you know, well-dressed in his white garments, carrying a cross. You know, I have a particular sanitized image of take up your cross and Jesus doing these things. They don't, they haven't experienced any of this yet. They don't have 2000 years of religious art. They haven't seen the crucifixion. They don't know about Easter Sunday yet. None of that is existent. So when they hear for the very first time ever, Jesus saying, take up his cross, he's saying, you are going to be committed as treasonous from the empire. So nobody's going to like you. Your family might turn on you and you will be executed as a treasonous traitor by the empire in which you live. You cool? We good now? But, but the potency of that line, again, take up your cross and follow me. Okay, imagine you don't know anything about the Passion or Easter Sunday. Take up our cross. Wait, that's how Rome executes people who were revolutionaries and try to overthrow the empire. What now, Jesus? <laughs> you know? And just to try to hear that with the... And, and clearly, they don't really hear it, and they kind of brush it aside, and they don't understand fully. But I was just really struck by the idea of hearing those words for the first time. It will even go that far. I am I'm hearing this in this really intense way where um, it's almost like putting on the mind of Elisha or Elijah and like I, I, I'm trying to understand the two concepts in a narrative whole. I mean, because what what's going to happen? Well, and then there's the positive part after this, right? Of course, of course, you know, and this, you know, prophets going to re- prophets reward, and yeah, and, and you're going to receives it, you receives me, right? And then the and whoever if you give a little one to drink because he's a disciple, you're going to not lose your reward, right? So he's going to give you something positive. So in other words, everyone's going to hate you. You might get killed. Your family might hate you. But there will be those who hear. There and, will be those who receive. And they will receive me, not just you. So that is important. I shouldn't brush aside that. But th- but this goes I- from antiquity because people are in profound need. If you look at the if you look at the woman from the first reading, yeah. yes, she 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 gave an apartment. Yeah. But she was in profound need. And then there's responsibility mm-hmm. for the proclamation of the kingdom to that woman. Yeah, yeah. Alicia yeah. and and Gerza had a, a profound obligation. I can't remember what the that's good. Servants, the val- the valet's name is. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> but but there's a responsibility to the proclamation of the kingdom. That yes, you won't lose your reward. Then we have this profound thing where you have these all these racial and cultural tensions mm. that are taking place within Rome. That mm. yes, you made the proclamation there, but there's still a responsibility to shepherd them through that, and that there's going to be having to die to yourself 
often that, but the, the need that underlies all of these things is so profound that people oftentimes are not even aware of how profoundly they need these expressions. And, and yet the, the task to go out and to do this, it, it feels like you're betraying everybody because people are not even aware of their own narratives and aware of their own needs underneath the stuff that's going on inside of them. And that you're going to expose this stuff and that you better be in full integrity. Don't lie to me, right. they say. Right. You better be in this because once you start doing this, that there is a responsibility and you're going to get into the mess. Which, which to me raises another question that I've been wrestling with this morning. Of and it's exactly what you're saying. I think, at least, it, I'm hearing it. Um, when Jesus is talking about you will be received, there will be those who receive you. Right. Um, the reason that I think the first reading, it's not misleading, but but it can be. Um, there's more to it. You might not always be received by a wealthy benefactor who's going to build <laughs> you an apartment. That might not be who receives you. You might be received by the poor woman at the well who's been shamed by her community and ostracized and is not popular or has influence or the money to build you an apartment. Maybe that's who will receive you. Maybe it's the people at the margin. You know what I mean? Who You will be received, and my truth will be heard, says Jesus, but... You need to have the eyes to see those who will hear the truth of the gospel because it won't always be the people who you want to hear. And I, I've been thinking about, and it was partially from a podcast I was listening to recently. Wow. I've been thinking about, um, oh, I'm just going to go for it. You know what? And I'm, I'm stealing this from a guy named Father Joshua Johnson, who's a, a priest down in Baton Rouge that I've been listening to a lot lately. I've been thinking about Derek Chauvin, who was the, the, the uh, police officer who kneeled on the neck of, of George Floyd and is uh, going to be in prison now. And um, Father Joshua Johnson um, was talking about, I, I don't even remember the context, but as far as seeing people in the image and likeness of God, um, this guy, this police officer who I think did a terrible, terrible, terrible thing is now a prisoner. That's where he is now. And Jesus said pretty explicitly in the Gospels, um, when you visit the imprisoned, you visit me. So do we actually have the guts to see Jesus in someone like that? And that got me thinking about St. Paul, who not only, you know, persecuted and killed Christians, he, he put Christians to death. He executed them. And then he had a conversion. He showed up at someone's door and he's like, will you guys receive me? I hear now. I see now. I didn't before, but now I actually do. I've changed, and I see Jesus. Will we be willing to accept and welcome someone who had a conversion like that? Right. I hear the, the two or, things I keep— Or like Zacchaeus, who exploited Zacchaeus. everybody yeah, in, right. in his town and neighborhood right. with a strong mob-like mentality. Absolutely Working right. for an occupying force, betrayed yes. his own people and took their cash and then said, Absolutely. Hey, and then Jesus is like, I'm coming to stay with you. And everybody's like, what did you say? Right. The tragedy is I don't know the end of Zacchaeus' story. Nor do I don't I. know if the church accepted Zacchaeus or not. I hope that they would have. We just don't know. Yeah. But we do know they took Paul in, which is the most shocking thing. Right. It's like or Onesimus, another another one. Onesimus, but but and I'm I'm again, just pushing on this. But imagine, yeah, like, imagine I'm just, I'm just gonna again I'm gonna go for my analogy all the way. Imagine a black church taking in Derek Chauvin after he was released from prison, and saying we want you to be a part of our congregation. Because yep. you said you've, you've come to know Jesus Christ. We want to welcome you with absolute open arms. 
that's something our, our media, our culture, our social media, we, we can't handle a narrative like that. We no. don't have a category. But Christianity is based on that category. Right. Of saying, no, we believe in radical reconciliation. We believe that Jesus has the power to change all of this. We believe in a guy like George Floyd, who had a crazy criminal background, who we believe was baptized and became a child of God. And we believe similarly that the guy who killed him can also be a child of God in his image and likeness and be equally welcomed into the family. Our media, our culture, we don't have a category where both of those two people fit. Right. But that's right. the challenge. That's what the gospel is. And that's hard. And that's hard to swallow. It's hard to accept. But I think that's what Jesus is actually trying to say. How big are you willing to trust me? What are you not willing to pray to me for that I want to give you that's actually going to be hard to accept and swallow and could have ramifications and consequences, but that I can actually change people through? Right. Because we're like the woman. We're not willing to pray for something that big. It's right. too much. Right. And yet, when it, when those things happen, which talk about the history of the church, when those things happen, then the the church is the landing place. Right. This is who we are. We're, this is and we're what it. our identity is. Where else are you going to go? Right. We're it. We're the ones who are a mess and a disaster who Jesus has reconciled back to himself despite all of the garbage in our background and our right. past because we died to that and we're risen again to him. Right. Where else are you going to go? The rest of society doesn't have a category for that. The church and the church alone does. Right. Which is why the church needs to step up. Well, this is what, I mean, I, I wonder, even you say, I'm going to say something complicated back to you now, Scott. Thanks. Um, is that we live in a humiliated church. Yeah. And so perhaps actually it's, it's out of that humiliation that we can minister. Because we understand what it is to be humiliated. humiliated. At least if we're honest with ourselves. Right. We should understand humiliation and reconciliation. And, th- and that second part is the absolute crux. Yes. Because then you walk through and say, let's go. Yeah. Right. All right. You know what? Yeah. It's going to get real complicated now. And and guess and we're gonna have to, and that's why we've got the theology that we have. That's right. why the social teaching that we have right. is because it is complicated. Because right. we are messed up, right? And 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 so we go and we don't stop. And if you cannot look at yourself and recognize we are messed up, you're never gonna be able to share the gospel. Right. It just doesn't work. Right. And we're the people who's who have been revealed in our own desperate need that we're not even willing to expose that God wants to actually tease out, mm. form, and then really heal. Yeah, Because that's actually what I'm seeing take place with this woman, is that she's really healed. Where does she go? She goes to the prophet who will bring God into the situation. Yeah. She doesn't go to any other, she doesn't go to her husband. She doesn't go to anybody. She just says, I know there's only one place. I'm not going to go to the servant. I'm going to the top. Absolutely. Give it, give it to me. Yeah, absolutely. And then I'm not leaving you. You can try the staff t- trick. <laughs> but I'm not going with him. I'm staying with you. I'm staying with you because I know that God is. <laughs> the old staff trick. <laughs> the old staff Classic. Trick. Oldest trick in the book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. This is really intense. I uh, feel this. Yeah. Um, I feel this. And, and, uh, and I pray, God, that we can live to what these stories are asking of us, both in our own seeking and in the responsibility that God has given us to go out mm. and to make this proclamation. Yep. That's all I got. That's all I got. <sighs>
Well, thanks, everybody. Thanks yeah. for listening. <laughs> um, we'll be back next time. Yeah, the, yeah. We made it past the end of the world that was supposed to happen on the 21st. I know. You know Congratulations. The Mayan Gregorian calendar thing. So. Unless this is the afterlife and it's just a real letdown. <laughs> Which I don't think is the case. No, I don't think we'd be allowed to be allowed to podcast in the afterlife. Oh. <laughs> All right, you guys. We'll be back next time. Thanks okay, for God bless you. Bye. Bye. The Word on the Hill podcast is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org A-I-C-T. And you can find the Lanky Guys podcast at lankyguys.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next time.